0: So I don't know if you guys remember, but back in May, uh, Just Shoot It podcast, uh, Light the Fuse podcast, and Respect the Process podcast, and Making Movies is Hard did a four-way competition to see who could get the most iTunes reviews in the month of May. We lost, um, you know, pretty embarrassingly. I think we got maybe eight or nine, maybe? In May, and uh, I think within 14 days, just shoot it, it had gotten to 25. And Light the Fuse, I think, was like 22 or 23, like right behind them. And respect the process and, and make movies hard. We were behind. Anyway, so what I didn't mention is <laughs> that the agreement was that the loser would read copy provided by the winner's podcast on their podcast for the whole month of June. Although, I totally forgot to do it for the first episode in June last week. Um, My, you know, uh, apologies. Anyways, here it is. Here's the ad for Just Shoot It podcast. And um, yeah, you'll hear this three more times. Uh, But thanks again to those guys for um, doing the competition. It was a lot of fun and congratulations to... To the rest of the podcasts um, for their success and yeah no they're great shows and I hope everyone listens to them. Anyways here we go. Before we get into the episode I want to tell you about another filmmaking podcast called Just Shoot It. It's hosted by two incredibly knowledgeable charismatic just magnetic directors that I can only aspire to emulate one day. It's not a lie to say that most of what I personally know about directing is from Matt and Orrin's podcast Just Shoot It. And please ignore all other podcasts, especially Lot the Fuse, a deep dive on the intricacies of the Mission Impossible franchise, Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggles of independent film, or Respect the Process, a podcast about commercial directing hosted by a commercial director. Just Shoot It covers literally everything those podcasts cover, and then some. If you care about the craft and business of filmmaking, from how to sell projects to casting actors to designing the perfect shot list, Just Shoot It covers it all. So stop listening to this podcast right now, type in Just Shoot It into your podcast app, and get ready to have your filmmaking mind blown. Alright, and now, if you're still here, this is episode 209 of Making Movies is Hard. Welcome to Mickey Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Russell.
1: And I'm Colin
0: Levy. This week, we are very excited to welcome previous artist, animator, and filmmaker Michael Cowwood to the show. Welcome, Michael.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Did I say your last name right? Uh, no, but never mind. <laughs> yeah, well, here. Let, I let was going to call here. you out on that, too. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's,
2: it's, it's fine. It's pronounced uh, K-wood.
1: K-Wood. Okay,
0: there we go. That's easier should have added
1: um, a Y to that, you know. I
0: know. <laughs> so a, y a lot of, y they,
2: a lot of people pronounce, yeah, spell it with a Y because right. they think it should be like that. But <laughs> <see>. It's fine. <laughs>
0: so michael has done previous for a ton of big time hollywood movies uh that you all would have heard of such as uh fast and furious 7 bumblebee venom and dc shazam which i can't wait to see i'm so excited um but more importantly michael has also directed a number of animated short films um one of which has a little ton of views online and um what was that? it's like angels and devils i'm sorry i should have devils, it right here.
2: angels and dating yeah, yeah so de- i was not very good at coming up with titles at the time <laughs> <laughs> yeah and
0: it's funny because i when i w- went to watch it i had realized i had already seen it like mm. years ago so i was like oh right i remember this short film that's amazing yeah. um
2: yeah, it's so it feels like it ages it sort of dates me a little bit because there are people now commenting on that film saying, "I remember watching this when I was a kid." Yeah. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Isn't crazy.
1: Yeah. Uh wow, uh, 16.3 million views. I mm, wow. just pulled it up on YouTube. Amazing. Holy
0: moly. <laughs> that's, it's that's crazy. And that's just the
1: official upload. I'm sure it's been uh, reposted a billion times elsewhere.
2: I've done, i don't, it has been but I've done a pretty good job of taking it down wherever possible so gotcha. that's the oh, pro, really? that's the main one there is a director's cut that I put on Vimeo but that's gotten like barely any views in comparison right. to YouTube Wow
0: gotcha. wow what's barely <laughs> any views like 60,000 or something
2: <laughs> um i haven't even checked for a while but it's it's just in the thousands yeah single oh, okay. digit thousands <laughs> you know? oh
0: single digit thousands okay yeah. i don't know when, when you have 16 million i don't know what's small to you small could be like my <laughs> my biggest like hit ever you know uh,
2: <laughs> so yeah I, mean, I i still share the vimeo version when i want to show it to someone because i want that to be the version people see but mm. oh but, i see but i also secretly kind of want them to know how many views it's gone on youtube right. so <laughs> so the, yeah
1: so it's abstain- the director's cut is it's kind, it's kind of different you know, yeah, it's so a little different. Um,
2: mm-hmm. The um, version I put on YouTube, um, because I never did the festival run, I mm. never really had the time to sort of sit back, take a breather from it and watch it uh, with a bit of a, a time having mm. passed. Mm-hmm. And and I fairly quickly realized that it felt rushed in places and there were people saying they were confused. Oh. Um, so I actually went back in. Um, lengthened a few of the shots in places added a few extra shots that I, that I, it was like I felt dumb not having added these shots the first time around and so I basically made what I call a director's cut and then I stuck it on <laughs> Vimeo about six months later um, but gotcha, of course wow. didn't get anywhere near as many views as the YouTube right. version which you can never change so of course right. yeah, isn't that
1: version. frustrating you can't uh, Yeah, you can replace a, a, a video on Vimeo but not on YouTube of course yeah yeah, that's so still you...
0: the case they haven't done that yet they haven't given that update as far as i know <laughs> that's yeah. crazy youtube come on mm,
1: get with the I, but it's
2: it's one of the only video other than that i like vimeo, uh, youtube a lot the features on youtube i i are generally a lot better than vimeo i find mm. um it's just you can't swap it out
1: right right i wonder what the rationale is for both services like why you well, I guess the
2: thing is you could swap it out for a video with dick pics in it if you wanted to, right. that's, oh, the that's the trouble. Oh, that's <laughs>
0: the... They, they don't have any ability to, to, like, monitor it or something. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> before we get into all the nitty-gritty of everything, uh, Michael, give us your quick one-minute bio, like, of your, your background and everything.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I uh, I started in... as kind of trying to be a 2D animator. I got my uh, degree in animation as a 2D animator, and graduated in 1999, uh, but that's right after Toy Story had come out. 2D was dying, and I was over in the UK, um, and so I kind of I decided rather than taking a 2D job as my first job, I went and did uh, CG in games, which turned out to be pretty smart because I haven't stopped working in Maya ever since as a mm. 3D guy. Mm. And uh, long story short, I've done um, games, films, commercials, TV. Um, and short films, uh, all kinds of stuff ever since then. Um, I've bounced around the world. Um, I have I started in the UK, um, spent some time in London, Glasgow, Sheffield, Midlands, but also went down to Sydney um, to work on Happy Feet. Hmm. Um, then I came over to the US in 2009, uh, started in Austin, Texas, um, and then went over to New York for a bit, and I've now actually been in LA for about six years, uh, where I've wow. been doing a lot of sort of uh, mostly movie stuff and a sort of sprinkling of commercials on the side. What uh, a journey! But, yeah, <laughs> all over the place. <clears throat> uh, and
1: where you, you grew up in the UK, and mm. uh, what, what school did you you studied, as you said? Yeah, um, animation.
2: Um, uh, so I, I was kind of self-taught for a bit there. I, I went to an art course. I already knew I wanted to do animation when I was about 14. And I mm. I started, um, I put myself on that path from 14 and then went to an art course where... To be honest, most of anything I did on that course officially had next to nothing to do with animation or, or anything I would ever use again. <laughs> um, but on the side, I had a really good friend um, who was also into animation. And the two of us just, just, just did little animated things on the side. So stop motion um, and right. CG stuff and 2D stuff and all kinds of stuff. And, and by the end of that two year art course, we actually had a portfolio of animated stuff um, even and- before starting an animated course. And then, um, then I went off, and we both went to uh, the Glamorgan Centre for Art and Design Technology in Wales. Um, okay. And at the time, there was only seven animation courses in all of the UK, um, and that was one of the better ones. Huh. Um, and I was there for like three years. By the time I finished that three-year course, there was like seventy courses. Now there's probably seven thousand courses. <laughs> right. You know, it was exploding at the time. Wow.
1: Um, yeah, you got in right. I mean. Yeah, as all this movement was happening.
2: Yeah. I mean, in terms of getting into CG, it was a really good time. Mm -hmm. Um, I I, I, I mean, although I knew a bit of CG because I was self-taught a little bit during those days, I was basically a 2D guy um, with the ability to use a computer to support it. Mm. Um, But then when I got my first job working um, at Rare doing games for, at the time, Nintendo... um, It was a time when they were willing to let people learn on the job how to use CG, um, which of course doesn't happen now. You've got to know everything before you get in. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the time, they handed me a manual and I probably spent the first two or three weeks just going through the manual um, and doing little exercises. Um, (laughs) And and funnily enough, at the end of about two or three weeks, um, I sort of said, hey, is there anything I can actually do on the project? And they right. let me start. Uh-huh. Um, and I thought that, that I'd spent quite a long time learning, to, you know, at two or three weeks in. Um, <laughs> but the funny thing was, the guy who'd started before me turned around and was absolutely embarrassed because he spent about six months learning it <laughs> before they actually oh, put wow. him on something on the project. And yeah. so for me to do That's it in funny. three weeks was just like, whoa! <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what was that project that you worked on uh, at Rare? What was that first project?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, pretty lucky first start, really. Um, I got onto to what were, was eventually released as Star Fox Adventures for the mm-hmm. GameCube. Oh, wow. Cool, um, nice. Now, it started out as um, something for the Nintendo 64, and it wasn't a Star Fox project. But it was still going to be um, Rare's big um, Zelda-like um, RPG. And so I still felt pretty oh. privileged. And more than that, when I started in games, I fully expected to be... Told I was going to be doing cycles, just like characters running on the spot, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Oh um, yeah. And I was told on day one, um, like I was shown some cutscenes from the game on d- on day one in this big screening room, and um, they uh, and I was immediately told on the spot, oh Michael, and you're going to be doing um, cutscenes. And I was oh. like, woohoo! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I was like thrown straight in the deep end of just being a filmmaker from uh, straight away. So I was super lucky.
1: And and um, oh, awesome. were you were you animating? Were you basically yeah an animator, or were you uh, yeah. like how how did it work in those days at that studio?
2: Um, so we, we would have like two screens in front of us. One of them was the game, mm-hmm. and the other one was a Silicon Graphics machine, mm. um, and they were kind of hooked up in this sort of slow link thing. Where you would do um, animations in Maya mm-hmm. um, with the characters on your silicon graphics machine, and then you would do some coding and drop them into the special lists and stuff, and <laughs> they would show up in the game, and then you used a special tool in the game to compile them into a sequence. Um, so wow. you were able to basically create the cutscene, position the cameras, and one of the things I absolutely loved was that you used the uh, game controller to maneuver the camera huh. um, so you could literally move the camera through space with the game controller and then press a button to set a key then move the game the camera again press a button to set a key <laughs> and so on I got so good at that that I could literally almost real time create a camera move just with a joypad right um, and huh. I really I sort of missed that
1: actually <laughs> yeah yeah it's interesting it's so I mean it's nice to have that tactile feedback and to Mm. feel like you're performing something live in a way. Well, even uh, as well
2: as that is, you could have the director come over. And I got so good at it at one point that he yeah. would say, um, we would have a bit of a discussion about what it was he wanted to achieve. And I could almost real-time produce the camera work he was looking for, just straight <laughs> from on in front of his eyes. Yeah, right. Um, and I could make adjustments as he was going, no, a bit more left. And I just suddenly, it'd be like I was flying a helicopter or something. And right. I actually had that real-time control of it. Uh, so um, cool. So, yeah, I mean, we I, I've not, not had that much f- f- fast feedback now. I guess the equivalent now would be using some sort of uh, VR, AR tools and things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was doing that 20 years ago. Yeah, it's <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. yeah, right. We've
1: gone back in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, And so so it sounds like in addition to animation, obviously you had to be sort of a technical director person, someone who's familiar or comfortable writing code to some degree, and then kind of doing layout or camera stuff as well previs-esque mm. work because you're touching camera and you're working on basically an edited sequence mm. uh in you know designing a cutscene. is that like yeah. all these skills you're kind of a generalist uh, that, to yes, make that I'm, work right I
2: wouldn't c- have called myself a generalist back then but these days I do actually because yeah. okay. I, I do cover so many different bases now that I, I sort of yeah I, I guess take that's that box <laughs> I guess
1: that's what's sort of yeah, behind the question is like mm. you started as a two D guy, and I'm just sort of curious how your specialty and your and how you found your niche in that mm. you know long journey through you know across all these studios and even industries, as you said, starting from games, going to animation, into effects, etc. Um,
2: well, mm-hmm. I think the thing that um, I, I did a little differently to most people was that. Um, like typically at that time when I was working on that project an animator um when they ran out of work the most common thing that they would be teaching themselves would be say modeling and texturing because they were looking right. to be that sort of generalist character and in this and in, in the animation industry a generalist you first usually means a modeler and then all the other stuff right um but uh my philosophy has always been to identify the things that were needed the most on the team, uh, the things that were most lacking, and study those things. Mm. So when I was asked if I wanted to be a modeler or a texture artist, I actually said, well, no, there's like 20 people here who can do that already. (laughs) Um, What I'm seeing is that you need help with story and storyboarding and character design. Um, Can I do those things? And when you're in downtime, they don't really care what you do. So they were like, yeah, okay, have a go. Hmm. um it's it's your neck in a rope sort of thing yeah <laughs> um and but it worked out and uh because I'd already been focused on cutscenes um it was a logical extension for me to then just um study those things i would always been sort of self-taught mm. um ri- reading about screenwriting and uh, filmmaking and things like that, and I just expanded on that in my free time. Um, so I'm this funny sort of weird generalist in that I, I haven't focused on the things that most people focus on, but it's made me more into a filmmaker. Hmm. Um, and and to the point that I basically felt like an animated filmmaker, that's what I call myself, really. <laughs> yeah. Be- I think it's a more accurate description than a generalist. Because right. a generalist, usually you don't turn to a generalist to make a film. Right,
1: right. Hmm. Uh, although to make a film, you know, uh, to make an animated film... Uh, in addition to being a filmmaker, if you're working with no budget it's good
2: to be a generalist yeah uh, <laughs> and, and that's the other thing I mean again you get to that point where okay the thing that uh, no one can do or no one wants to do is the thing I have to learn so right. over time I learned all the other stuff too like right. you know I, I taught myself how to be a, a character rigger and I know just about enough about modeling and texturing in order to get by if I needed to right um, but wow. you know that,
1: that's that's really smart though overall just as a, as a, as a sort of strategy mm-hmm. you know to identify identify the thing that that is needed, you know, mm. instead of I mean, to some degree, obviously, you know, you've gotta you've gotta be passionate and interested. <laughs> yeah. But uh but there's a lot of modelers out there, as you say. And there's yeah. there's actually a lot of animators out there. I sort of feel like that's how I kind of got into layout, you mm. know, or or had a chance to to get to work in animation is because, you know, compared to Comparatively, Layout is, is um, you know, sort of like the ugly stepchild that no one...
2: Yeah, it's a bit of an unsung hero.
1: Yeah, yeah. But, there's just far fewer, you know, Layout artists out there or people training for that position.
2: Yeah, it's it's one of those things. There's a lot of people still looking down their nose from an animator's perspective <laughs> uh, at that position. And yet now that I've done it for a while, um, Layout and previs, I feel like they're far more creative Mm. um and absolutely i I, i've in i've definitely enjoyed the breadth of the work that's associated with being working in previs and layout um and it just happens that i can also be an animator if i need to you know because that's where i started right and and Mm. so a lot of
1: the work that you like for example on on Happy feet were you in layout or
2: no but I wish I was Um, that was one of those ones where um, it was my first break working in an actual feature film Um, and really they were just bringing on uh, more bums in seats in order to do (laughs) a lot of the stuff that nobody else wanted to do so um, I, I thought it was going to be an animator position and I was hired as an animator but they mm. called it technical animator which mm. at the time I didn't understand basically meant <laughs> all the stuff that none of the animators wanted to do. Mm. Um, so, Is it fixes
1: uh, or, yes. or sort of, yeah?
2: Yeah, I, I, I mean I did a little bit of performance animation but very little of it made it to the screen. No, I mean if you were to ask me what was the one thing I could tell you I did on Happy Feet it was the wobbling antenna at the the end of the movie. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, it was lots of little things like wing fixes, foot fixes, and paths of characters and crowd shots and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So you you did some background uh, character work to some, you know, for um, crowds? A little bit, but nothing really that you would point out and put in your reel. I certainly didn't walk away. I mean, I put some tests in my reel, but Mm -hmm. really it was just to say I worked on the movie.
1: Right gotcha
0: so for for us for those of us who <laughs> don't know what a fix is um can you just describe that yeah because um, i know you guys are both in the animation world but you know
2: for me and other of course people, yeah so yeah a, a typical fix on happy feet um was um they'd have this epic pipeline where you could um drop your mouse on a pixel on a render and it would tell you exactly which penguin Um, that was. You could then um, go into the software, bring in that penguin, and uh, make an adjustment. So a a fix might be that there's uh, 100 penguins next to each other, but if you look really closely, two of them, their wings are passing through each other on one frame. And so you would have to go and grab (laughs) one of them, move its wing uh, in a plausible way that still works and so it doesn't pass through the other guy. but then there's there's wow. a lot of there's a lot of other small stuff that um, it's not just little fixes so much as it's stuff that other oh. animators with uh, less time than you uh, and that cost a lot more um, don't want to do. So I actually there was a guy next to me who poor soul um, (laughs) he's a friend of mine I won't name him but (laughs) But, um, (laughs) at one point his job was to animate the characters that are off screen casting shadows onto the ground in the frame right uh, oh wow so that that looks Amazing. correct, <laughs> and, th- and then and then there was another time when it was his job to animate the characters in the handle frames just so that the motion b- blur would be correct or just in case wow. the editor changed the shot and used it mm. so he, he knew his work wow. wasn't going to be seen but it kind of was needed right <laughs> you know <laughs> wow that's how far down the scale you go and, and it's right. at that point that i realized after about seven years into my career where I'd already been a lead animator in the games industry. It's like, whoa, relative to film, I'm a nobody, you know. (laughs) Well, you kind of
1: have to start over, you know, uh, so many times. I mean, it seems like um, having jumped from studio to studio, I mean, hopefully there's a certain amount of seniority or, uh, you know, experience accumulated that makes a difference. but, But to some degree also, it's just like, yeah, hitting the reset button. Um, oh, and
2: i and I've done that many times, right. I, and I've gotten used to it. Um, it's, I've sort of, what I tend to do is I've started in one industry and I've gotten to hit the the ceiling on that one mm. and then I have sidestepped to another industry, but usually you have to take a demotion right. um, to start again in that right. industry. But then what I noticed was that I climb up in that industry faster because of what I already know. Right. And then I sidestep again and again and again <laughs> until I get closer to what I really want to be doing. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, basically, I'm an animated filmer and I love doing animated feature films or whatever variation thereof um, that could be in my future. um, And that's the thing that you've been sidestepping towards
1: this whole time is basically directing, filmmaking, you know, Mm -hmm. being uh, targeting, yeah, as you say, animated features. That's that's the goal.
2: Yeah, and, and the funny thing is I do love live action and I watch more and more um these days and 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 less and less actual animation um okay. so sometimes i wonder ooh i wonder if i could do live action and uh and, and find some use for my skills overlapping in that but yeah. it's daunting like the th- the things i'd need you guys already know that i'd need to know in order to make it a solid stab at live action mm. is scary to me because i kind of already know what i've learned to do what i do in, in, a, in an animated in animation and so i feel like whoa that's a huge scary step
1: right Right, I am very familiar with that <laughs> the place that you are. <laughs> um although I'll just say that I feel like that you know that there's so much overlap and there's so much um that you have uh you know built up uh skills that that are incredibly useful. You know, regardless of the medium, whether it's live action or, or animation. Like Everything that you, you know, obviously uh, know in the animation world is is gives you a leg up when it comes to visual effects, of course. Mm-hmm. And visual effects, you know, filmmakers who are comfortable with those tools, I think, have a leg up up over filmmakers who who, who don't have that in their vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of just have this technical background that you could absolutely leverage in pursuing a, a career in live action. Kind of as you said, you know, you'd sidestep, you'd have some learning to do. But you would pick it up fast and you have actually yeah so much, um, you know, filmmaking ec- expertise, you know, that you've accumulated, um, you yeah. know, in animation that would serve you really well, I think.
2: Although one of the funny things is if, if you were to do, if I were to do live action, my instinct is to um, include something animated to benefit from that experience. Right. But what people don't really realize when you're, and you know this very well, Colin, hmm. um, that when you're doing live action and animation combined, you're kind of doing three jobs. Hmm. You're doing the live action work, <laughs> you're doing the animated work, and then you're doing this completely uncredited and unseen thing where you're trying to figure out how to make the, the animation fit in the, t- the live action hmm. and all the problems that there are associated with that matching the and tracking the plates and all that kind of stuff right um yeah, it's almost like three Crazy. times the work and yet most people are looking <laughs> Whoa, at it right. thinking it's only you know one job hmm. right. um yeah i've been doing a little bit of that here and there i, I wouldn't say that i do a ton of it but i've done some post viz work mm-hmm. um and i'm working on it with in a company right now that's doing that so i was um i was the uh post-vis supervisor on Bumblebee so there was uh, a bunch of that kind of stuff to do in there and, and it's just kind of a, cool. it's a bit of a thankless task you know tracking and making everything fit in a shot and sometimes right. something just doesn't work and you have to figure <sighs> out exactly why it doesn't so true. sit there yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: that is that is a, a huge part of the process that I feel like you know similar to layout it's it's um, yeah it's kind of under the radar mm. you know Uh, The post viz.
0: So before we get into post viz, (laughs) um, I want to I want to hear more about like. You going from animation, or you know, doing happy feet and this video game stuff, into working on previs for for live action movies. Mm. So, w- what is like, what led you to that? And then, like, what are the difference between those two roles? Well,
2: to be honest, previs is something I've essentially been doing for 20 years. Um, that stuff I was doing in games was so similar to what I'm still doing when I do previs today. The only real difference is that they call it. Pre- Previs, when it's intended for a live action feature film or something like that. I uh, see. And so it, it's funny, people are, look at my career and think, oh, I've only been doing Previs for about six years. Uh, but in reality, I've been doing it for about 20. Hmm. Um, but what really made me focus in on Previs at one point was um, I was working on Skylander's Giants over in New York. Um, and I was actually like an animation supervisor, director kind of thing on that. Um, but when we were recruiting for people to work on that project, um, I think we, we pulled in 60 to 100 di- people um, from various different sources. But what was really, really hard was finding people who knew what to do with the camera mm-hmm. um, and how to lay out shots. And out of that sixty to hundred people we only had three or four that could do camera work well hmm. and They hired um, a previous house from LA to come on and sort of subsidize what we were doing and, and and Fill it out and and at some point I realized I was one of these very few people who could do a really good job of it and so when I came over to LA it was just something I I thought, well, let me try sidestepping again mm. and see if I can get into Previs when I came over to LA. Um, and it turned out to be a really smart choice. Um, and I was embraced by what is the Previs industry over in LA. And I've bounced around a few of the different Previs houses. Um, but what was so good about it was that I came in at a high level. All of a sudden, I'm a really good Previs guy. Um, and they put put me on lots of major movies and suddenly my credits went from things you know games Mm -hmm. and more obscure projects to some of the biggest projects going on in the world Um, so suddenly my credits look amazing in just the last six years (laughs) Um, but I'm really doing the same kind of work it hasn't changed all that much it's just um, you know that was what was needed and and I recognize that you know my skills were needed in that area so I've mostly done that.
0: So break down one of the movies you worked on and, and like, talk to us about what what did you do as a previous artist and what scenes or or scene or scenes you worked on. Mm -hmm. Um, And, I mean, I've seen almost all the movies that you've worked on, I think. Um, But I don't know. I mean, maybe Venom or... The Fast and Furious movie or Star Trek. One of those, maybe. I don't know if there's a good story there.
2: Yeah, I think it's not even my favorite movie, but I think the one I always come back to is Fast and Furious Um, because uh, I'd started, started, I think my first really big one was uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Um, And I had, uh, there was an excellent pipeline there, and I was handed what I needed to do on that. Hmm. Um, But when I started on Fast and the Furious, the reins were released a little bit and um, I was given a lot more creative freedom and you know I would talk it over with the supervisor who would bring out the little toy cars and say right this is what I need them the cars to do and you can figure out the rest and you, hmm. and I got a whole sequence it wasn't just a shot it was a whole sequence oh wow and I would be given uh, an undefined period of time that was just sort of maybe it was going to be a few weeks or something but um, and you would just kind of start figuring it out and and I would animate the cars. I, I would be given um, a 3D set um, by the modelers and the cars and the characters and I would essentially animate out a rough version of how those cars move through space and where the characters come in, and roughly what timing. And then I would start putting down cameras. You know, that like the hero cameras, mm-hmm. the ones that you you think are going to really define the sequence. And you start timing it out, and you you, wow. you shoot out little videos of that. Um, and this was the first time I was really encouraged to do coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, And we even had these rigs where literally you imported in this custom rig that had about 20 cameras on it and just constrained it to all the cars. Hmm. The idea being that each of those cameras covered a particular angle. So that's where all those little um, cameras attached to the wheel, um, the trunk, uh, the steering wheel, all those kind that come in, they Hmm. were just already there. Hmm. and. You could just move them around a little bit relative to that position, but they were constrained to the car. Then I would throw in all the cameras that I think I want to do for the external angles, the the fake helicopter shots, the pedestrian on the street, someone looking through a window. And then I would make videos for as long a video as it was useful. So, for example, I would put down um, a camera and then I would say, I think I want that camera to go from frame 100 to 2000 and just make a video of that. Even though most of that's u- wow. useless, you'd then fill, fill a folder with those shots, then open up Premiere, start to bring them in and construct the sequence and basically be an editor for that sequence and make something that essentially works. Um, now, ironically, the editors still want c- to have those shots with all the extra frames so that they can make their own decisions about what they want. But I have to make at least one functioning, working version of the scene that I can give to them. Wow. And basically, I just evolved from there. And I think one of my favorite um, sequences was uh, the one in F- Fast and Furious 7 where the two Dubai towers um, and the car jumps between the towers. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So I constructed um, pretty much all of that and oh, wow. figured out how all of that was going to work. Um, and and then what was amazing about that was when the Super Bowl came around, um, they were showing a trailer for the film and I'm sitting down with friends and I said, oh, that's my shot. Oh, that's my shot too. Oh, shit, that's my shot too. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that's the, awesome. like the whole trailer was like all my
1: shots. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, that, that's amazing. You know, the that, you know, hero shot where the the car is is in slow motion, kind of in mm-hmm. between those towers. Yes, that that that's that was on your desk. You yeah, you previous that. Yes. <laughs> so, so. So cool. So did you also previs the stuff
0: that's happening inside the tower that leads up to the car? Yes. Going out? So you do that whole part? Yeah, basically. While...
2: I mean, from the car starting, you know, from the character getting the car, starting it up and then and, and racing off all the way through crashing and, and and the characters falling out of the car at the other end. Um, because what the thing is. That's amazing. We were prevising what the characters would do, too, because they have to figure out what the stunts are going to be. Mm. Um, and where they need to set up those cameras to get those um, internal shots of you know re- camera uh, character reactions um, while the thing's happening in fact on Fast and Furious there's a lot of stock photo um, material where it should be stock but it never is you have to keep creating it but it's like the same <laughs> um, foot on the accelerator hand shifting a, a, a gear and you know, <laughs> yeah. turning a steering wheel um, and then there's other shots that are very common in Fast and Furious too like the guy holding the bazooka <laughs> three quarters to camera right. you know <laughs> yeah. after a while you, you once you've done a faster furious movie you feel like you've done the same shots a hundred times
0: so so when, when they came to you with the sequence what do they bring to you do they do they have storyboards of the whole thing of how they want it to
1: look mm-hmm. like like how much information are you given before you create the and previous this, for that the, sequence this, the, the the uh those buildings and how far apart they are for example mm-hmm.
2: um was that kind of figured out as well before it hit you your desk well The set is pretty straightforward. It's the modeler's task to go ahead and make it accurate to the real world. Um, Now, sometimes we might start something um, that doesn't have to be too accurate to the real world, and we'll just fake it Mm. and make it look good. Um, But sometimes they do need it to be accurate to the real world, and and someone goes ahead and they're looking at Google Earth, and they've got um, various charts in front of them showing them all the measurements so uh, someone else will usually have figured that part out before I, I get my hands on it right um but what was the other question again you were saying about uh, script or a sto- other oh, storyboards yeah. storyboards yeah well if i'm lucky um i'm given a screenplay when i first join a project and i get to read it and understand what it's about um, it depends on the nature of the project. Fast and Furious uh, is so much about the action, it almost doesn't matter if you read the script. <laughs> um, but there are other movies where I would definitely read the script first. I did on Dawn of the Plant, the Apes and The Mummy and things like that. Mm. Um, and then in terms of the sequences and the storyboards, sometimes you get given storyboards and sometimes you don't. Um, and what I just found is that in the early stages, yes, if you're the new guy, then they're more often than not going to give you a, a sequence that's already been boarded. Um, and you start out by reproducing the boards so that, because generally the boards have been approved by the director. So you want to give him a version that he's approved before right. you then go off and do other creative stuff. Mm-hmm. Um But as you go along and you become the senior guy, um, you get ahead of the curve a bit. And more often than not, I would find myself working without a storyboard. And so you're just told what happens and you have to make it. um, And you just start (laughs) plugging gaps in the movie with very little information other than this is what is happening beforehand. This is what is happening afterwards. And you have to make something cool in between, (laughs) which (laughs) is exactly what happened when I was doing (laughs) cutscenes for games. Right. Um, Oh, wow. Literally there, they would just say, "Okay, we need to tell the player they're picking up this bauble and taking it to this character. You figure out what happens in between. Wow.
0: Oh, wow. So you would be writing the story of the game in the cut sequence, basically?
2: Well, actually, in the first one, I was handed scripts and dialogue. um, But as I went along, I was um, influencing the story more and more and more. And and the thing was to try and make it a bit more interesting. Um, So yes, sometimes you would be you'd have a set and you knew you were entering through this door over here and exiting through that door over there um, or, or pointing in this direction anyway. And you would try and find the most interesting and condensed way to get from A to B. Um, wow. I would frequently uh, just take the dialogue, lay it down in, in the tightest version that sounded natural and then try and figure out what visuals went went with that in order to um, make it work. Hmm. Um, but yeah, you... you when it came to the movies, you are kind of trying to find something really cool to do with the pieces that you are given, basically.
0: Wow. So for Fast and the Furious, did they give you storyboards, or was that one that you had to, like, just figure out on your own?
2: Again, it was a mix. I can remember sequences where I had boards. Um uh, okay. That sequence I just described was, like I said, was pretty creative, and I th- don't think I had any boards. Wow. Amazing. I'm sure somebody listening out there will g- g- tell me differently. It <laughs> will be, we'll be like,
0: you had boards, damn it. No, no. We worked on that for six months. That was definitely
2: one where most of the creativity came purely out of working in 3D but um, there were other sequences where there's a chase going down an extremely steep hill um, at about 45 degrees or something and I know that that one was boarded quite heavily Mm. and so you Uh, you try to reproduce those boarded shots but the the thing is uh, and I've done enough storyboarding as well to know that you can kind of cheat like crazy for the storyboards and then when you've really got the set in front of you and you're really working with the timings you can't always stick to the boards exactly. You've got to sort of take the spirit of them and capture it in a way that um, you hope the director feels like is the same thing. Mm. Um, this is where you get into this weird spiral, though, because sometimes they will just say, oh, actually, I was in the office just the other day. And, and um, this is applies to animation and all kinds of different things, too. But what happens is... Um, An animator gets a brief and they see certain problems with the brief. They solve those problems and present back to the client the uh, version they feel like captures the spirit of it, but basically solves those problems. Client then comes back and says, um, I'd like it to be more like the brief. Right. So, you go and reproduce the problems that were in the original brief, Client then, oh, man. client then sees the problems and tells you, <laughs> in a micromanaging way, um, one step at a time, how to solve those problems until you get back to the first version that you gave the client in the first place. <laughs> That's funny. That is a cycle we all play out on everything that we do all the time. Um, and previs is no exception. And so, the funny thing is, the more information they give you, like a storyboard, um the more you sort of realize okay i have to give them what they think they want for the first pass um and then maybe if you got a bit of free time if you if you have managed to achieve what they want in a couple of days but they don't haven't asked to see it until the end of the week you then go off and create some other stuff and you give them that too um, but you have the supervisor usually prioritizes what the director asked for first from the boards, right. in order to make sure that they saw that and then you can show them the other fun stuff and they go oh that looks cool and i have that and so on right uh, but it, it it is sometimes a bit of um, presumptuous maybe on our part that we were we'll sort of go well that's not working so i'm going to do this and i won't even show them what they asked for <laughs> um, yeah but that gets in- you into trouble um, it's more often than not they asked to see that first version if it was boarded yeah what,
0: one last question about the previous stuff so when you're doing like the sequence uh, the Dubai Tower jump mm. in Fast and Furious how much are you working with the director is like Justin Lin there like looking at all your cuts with you or are you just sending them off and he's reviewing them like how does that work
2: I wish that had been the case um, on that particular movie no I never met the director um, there, were, okay. there were other movies where I did um, and it's highly variable. Uh, I think as a rule of thumb in previs uh, The supervisor would hope to actually meet with the director and get more immediate feedback um, And the artist doesn't necessarily get to meet the director, Okay. but, but it does vary a bit um, on the mummy I was the supervisor and so yes, I was working directly with the director but what we managed to do was get these um uh, feature animation like review sessions going where we poured all 20 previous artists into a small room We invited the director and the visual effects supervisor and producer in and we sat there and they would critique on a big screen in front of us Everything that they saw, mm. with the animators sitting uh, just behind them, which was mm. fantastic. Sometimes we all we'll on certain projects, like on one I was doing a few months ago, where we we'll record that what the director's saying, so that the artist hears it kind of firsthand. But the problem with that is they can't ask a question. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, uh. So if the artist can be there with the director, that's ideal. But to be honest, it, there's. So much going on with the director. It's pretty rare that he actually gets to speak to an artist one-on-one Yeah, so no fast and furious I didn't speak to the director and what you would do is you would send off a version give a load of material to an editor Maybe you'd move on to another sequence for a while And then they would start sending you back notes and new ideas and things like that And maybe the story would have changed that ho- during the time you were doing it Yeah So actually one of the things I've found in previs is that you actually don't want to get into a scenario where you're animating it and new doodling it and making it pretty because the more time that you have to make it pretty, the longer it is that the director is getting to see that thing. Um, and the less like his original idea it is. And he may have come up with new ideas. Uh, right. So I always get a bit of paranoid if I'm working in previs and I'm starting to make pretty animation because I kind of know <laughs> that he's not seen it and that there's not a tight enough communication loop. Hmm. Um, so if, if you manage to stay rough, it's a good thing in, in previs.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of amazing. I mean, it sounds like you, you a- end up having a pretty big creative impact on the film or a sequence in a film. It, it, so, and in certain times. In certain times, maybe you don't have as much, but it's pretty amazing, like, how much... Yeah, I think so. ...influence a previous artist has, because, you know, I always just assumed you don't always get storyboards, and you'd be just, like, you know, executing boards, basically, as a previous artist.
2: I think that is the story most people tell you, you know, and and it's just that there's so many changes going on so fast that it, you get to a point where you are typically quite creative. It, it is a funny thing though, but I've definitely played this game with the storyboard department of like how much creativity you have and who comes in and, and does their thing first. I think I learned the most when I was supervising on The Mummy because we were all in the same building and we had multiple different teams. Um, each sort of kind of acting like different companies or different departments with different amounts of um, influence over the end project. But a sequence idea might come down and it, and you would hope that it hit the storyboard artists first. They do a few ideas very quickly because storyboards for sure you can do faster than previs. Um and at least especially for the character material. Right. Maybe not for, say, cars and spaceships and stuff like that. Um, But you would hope that it hit the storyboard team first. They got a few rough ideas out. The director saw them, approved them, passed them on to us, and then we would expand upon that. That's the hope. Mm. But actually, in a lot of cases, it would arrive Um, come down the pipeline and hit our team at exactly the same time as the storyboard team Um, in fact the storyboard team was a lot smaller than the previous team so sometimes we had capacity at Previs to start before storyboards did Hmm. Um, and and at that time i would sometimes run down the corridor and talk to the storyboard artists and say hey um i found ourselves doing this particular sequence have you already started on it? Are you doing it at the same time? Is there something that we can do to collaborate in order to make this go a little bit smoother and, and not double up? Because the last thing I wanted to do is have two people who are not talking to each other, trying to do something completely creative. Right, um, right. And, and wasting time when there's other things we could be doing. And unfortunately, it did happen many times. Um, and I'm sure it does happen on lots of productions. And most people just don't see it mm. because the communication isn't tight enough. Um, so a, a lot of this is just like trying to figure out how to get that communication to work quickly, and, and more often than not as a supervisor, you're just trying to bridge those gaps as quickly as you can, and making sure everybody knows what's going on. You know.
1: By the way, don't you feel like it would be really nice as an evolution of this process and the medium to some degree to be able to more fluidly combine storyboards and previs, to be able to, you know, use yes. previs or three D as you know, as necessary, basically, as you were saying, like a car chase, you're not going to want to board that you, you got to get in there in 3d and figure mm-hmm. out how this works. But then when you have an exchange between characters, and you want the expressivity, and it's like <laughs> medium close ups, or it's, it's obvious what the shot is. And you want to just execute fast to be able to like fluidly jump in and draw like either on top of 3d, or like, I don't know, but like a a sort of uh Medium agnostic approach that that's that's fluid mm. uh, and less like rigid pipeline wise. Like I've been personally searching for a better solution. Uh, to that, I'm just curious. Me,
2: me too. Yeah, uh, and and it's something that I've been trying to envisage for ages. Yeah. I have friends who are kind of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one particularly famous one, Federico Alessandro, who actually did work on the Mummy. Um, hmm. I, I might just say that, by the way, when I came onto the Mummy, they showed me some of his work uh, to begin with, yeah. and my jaw just dropped, <laughs> and I thought, why do you need me? <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> but. Um, uh, him and another friend of mine, um, Monty uh, Granito. He's doing some incredible stuff too, where they mix um, storyboard tr- drawn material over the two three uh, D material. Mm. Um, but I, I will say it's not qu- not necessarily quick. Okay, uh, it is amazing to look at afterwards you think wow why don't we do more of this kind of stuff right um, but like it's like that other thing of, of mixing cg with live action there's that middle step that just slows you down and they are still doing that to some degree i did a project mm-hmm. um, end of last year where um, i was the only previous artist on it it was an animated feature and although I was hired to be the previous guy, um, it actually made sense for the characters to be 2D um, storyboards to match with all of the other storyboard artists. And I relished the opportunity to jump in and actually draw the characters rather than have a rig another character and do it the normal previous way. Mm-hmm. But. The amount of time I spent just trying to get that 2D to sit well in the 3D environment. Yeah. Um, it was just really time consuming. And you, you kind of realize why it hasn't happened yet, this sort of blend. Right. Um, but. If somebody were to come up with a tool that would just allow me to just jump in to a 3D environment and draw a lot more, I would do it. I, I know that there's things like grease pencil and things like that, and I've dabbled a little bit in it.
1: I'm watching um, Frederico's uh, reel right now. And oh, have you never seen it's it incredible. before? incredible. No. Oh, my
2: God.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just looked him up, and he's like, did the storyboards for Captain Marvel, and he's just got a feature that he directed that just uh, either came out or is about to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy's killing it.
1: Yeah. You've not seen that stuff before? It's incredible. I think uh, I've seen uh, some uh, stuff on like special features but didn't realize cuz yes. cuz there's a lot of like Stuff I'm familiar with or sequences from all sorts of movies that I, I think I've seen special features for. So, yes, <laughs> he's worked on everything.
2: Yeah, Crazy. yeah. And we and I crossed paths very briefly with and chatted with him and sort of bowed at the altar of Frederico yeah. uh, when I when I met him um, for uh, The Mummy. But uh, yeah, I'd been seeing his work for some time wow. and, and it's kind of incredible. Yeah, um, but it is taxing. Uh, you know, he's got to be doing things in 3D and as well as it's, it's almost. 2D animation because he's yeah. drawing way more um, material than a normal storyboard artist would need to do. Right, right. Um, to to so get that sort of fluid look. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I want to have a go at doing that myself. And I sort of, in the back of my mind, I've got this little project I want to do as my next thing. But um, having just had a child, um, <laughs> my next project is going to keep me busy for the next 18 years. <laughs> right. Amazing.
0: So... So wait, on that note, unless, Colin, do you have any other no, questions no. about Previz or anything? I think we should talk about the filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Because I was looking at your IMDb, and I saw that you've got your first short film that you directed in 1999, then your next one in 2012, which we talked about already, mm-hmm. and then uh, your your new one that's about to come out, 2018. So that's like, what, like 13 years in between the first two
2: and then six between the you know that's, the other two so it's funny
0: that it takes a long time
2: <laughs> it's, it's actually nothing because I haven't even included my first films in there at all oh really wow uh, yeah IMDB I don't think was even around when I was making my first films I was doing stuff in DOS um, <laughs> like oh, wow. tw- 25 years ago with a friend of mine um, with really crude software. Um, and I've got this whole other website filled with things that most people would never watch today because they just look way too crude. Um, and, and the resolution on them were like 320 by 240 or something like that. Um, and so they were pretty awful. But yeah, there was a gap there. Um, I did all my student films. And then when I got my... Um, first, proper job, I thought, oh, I'm never going to have to do these projects on the side anymore. My day job's going to do everything for me. Um, and I was under that delusion for a while <laughs> until I eventually came to the conclusion that, okay, your day job is never going to quite give you everything you want to do. So it's smart to go back into making um, material on the side. And so Yes, I became another habitual filmmaker on the side. Um, and Devil's Angels and Dating was my first big stab into doing that um, after a, quite a long break there. Mm. Um, and But then, yeah, my new film is uh, The Wrong Rock. Uh, it's not out yet, but it will be this year most likely. Um, it's in the festival circuit at the moment. Um, it's in about seven festivals right now. But we're slowly but surely applying to all the Oscar qualifying festivals. Um, and you know, it's, 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 I assume it's, it's kind of off to a good start. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's one of the, I mean, that painful period right now where you, (laughs) I want to show everyone this film, but I have to sit on it and wait. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, cause yeah, typically,
1: I mean, you're gonna, you're gonna wait the full year, before putting yeah. that online. When did you I mean, start submitting out of curiosity?
2: Um, I think November-ish, yeah. somewhere around there. Yeah. I mean, we were basically... We got to a point where the film was completely watchable. I think the last time you saw it, Colin, mm. um, it was like uh, probably 90% there or mm-hmm. something like that. And you gave me a few ideas on how to improve a few things here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we got to a point where I'd solved those things and it was... We had a first-pass render for everything, but we might not have done all the effects yet. Or there were fixes we wanted to do. And so we started submitting, kind of knowing that the film, to the average Joe, looked finished. Right. So um, the first few festivals that got the film were definitely not the best version of the film. Right. Um, But we were like, let's... Make a start, and and funnily enough, what we also learned at the time was that we were in a way wasting our time because we were applying to late deadlines with a long film right. that was slight, slightly slightly yeah. unfinished, <laughs> and and we've learned that if you've got a long film, you really have to hit the early deadlines. Mm. Um, that makes sense. Ba- basically, the, yeah. the festivals um, prefer to schedule those long films early on, and then they're just looking for shorter and shorter films to fill their slots. Right. And um, so, uh, yeah, what's the runtime on this? Is it 15 or so? or It's uh, 13 or 14 minutes. Okay. Basically, the, wow. the final version will be 14 minutes. That's what the one that we'll put online eventually. Gotcha. Um, but for the festival circuit, I cut the credits in half. Um, oh, in yeah. order to make it that one minute shorter to see if we uh, and save ourselves a bit of screen time yeah and, and yeah and what I did that helps what I did there was I sped up the credits and I dropped some of the lower priority categories and I chopped the song in half
1: hmm.
2: oh yeah yeah I
0: mean because what what's on on the festival version what's the length of the credits is it like a minute and 30 seconds yeah a minute it's a minute and the final version like- will be like two minutes. I feel like a minute is even long for a film festival, you know, because that was something I learned on my first film festival I ever got into. Like I had like two minute long credits and I was in an audience with people watching it and I just see everyone rolling their eyes. And then like the (laughs) next movie after mine is like, you know, 30 seconds or less for the credits. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, my God, like that's what it needs to be (laughs) to keep keep the show going you know mm. and so i went back after that festival and then recut cut the movie to cut off the 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 credits you know mm, yeah. um just because for a short film in a festival it's just like that's what you need to do but i know it's hard for like a movie like yours where you have so many artists working on it like you gotta represent everybody yeah you know and we
2: didn't just run like a white on black um credit scrolling up the screen either we had a very pretty looking credit sequence yeah. with a great yeah. song over at the top so I, I couldn't bring myself to butcher it like that, but right. maybe maybe I should have. But it will only have saved me thirty seconds on an already long film. So I know we we're diving in right. maybe to the
1: wrong you know to the mm-hmm. wrong thing. But like, tell me about this song. Did you commission this, or is this something that you licensed, or?
2: We license it. So, yeah. Okay. Um, when I was doing Devil's Angels and Dating, I actually wanted it to be a musical. Um, uh, so, well. <laughs> I, sp- I spent a year um, working with somebody down in Texas who I built a good relationship with, who uh, we were trying to put in, layer in songs. What I wanted it to be was the character's thoughts sung out loud. Right. Um, but what I found was that the music world is so different. Um, that there was a lot of learning for me to do and um, the even the music and the writing of the songs couldn't keep up with the animation and the animation was slow Mm. Um, and we were doing all of this with zero budget so eventually I decided um, even after doing some tests I've got a little piece of devil's angels and dating where the character sings Uh, we went to a recording studio to do it (laughs) Um, and even after doing all of that i eventually had to call it and say you know what i've got enough momentum on the production side of things to get this film finished by a certain date i'm just going to do it without the music and mm. make it a traditional non-musical piece and so the film went through but i'd already made these relationships um in the music world and when we came around to doing well let me finish that story actually the we did end up doing a song with somebody else for devils Angels and Dating for the credits, which just was a bonus, worked out really nicely for that. And so many people loved the song um, in the in that uh, film that um, I worked with the composer at the time to loop the themes of that song back into the score. Hmm. And then the, what was interesting was that when the film was released and people watched the film, the film introduces you to those themes, and then by that time you hear it in the in the version in the song at the end for the credits. Right. Everyone's like, "Oh wow, I love this song! Where can I buy this song?" <laughs> what they don't realize is that they've heard the theme two or three times already. And right. They've just sort of been warmed yeah. up to it. Um, <laughs> right. And they give the credit to all the the the, uh, the song, but actually the score laid in those themes right. first. Totally. Um, and Art. so that that technique works so well and, and gave people a feel good factor uh, for the film that I decided I definitely want to do that again for uh, my new film. And I told the composer that that's what I'd planned to do, and he was up for it. Um, so uh, we, uh, I went back to the very same people I'd uh, tried to work with on Devils. Mm. And, um, and sh- she'd actually formed a band called The Misses um, with some other people. And they were getting quite successful and, uh, to the point that I was actually thinking, wow, they're going to be too big now. There's no way that they're going to work with me now. But um, <laughs> let's have a go. And, because at least I had that relationship um, with her. Um, so this was Larissa Ness, who's one of the band members on uh, the the Misses uh-huh. and um, so I reached out to her and she spoke to uh, the band, the person who owned the band and it just turned out that they had a lot of, Interesting themes in the kind of work that they were doing. They were working with a charity and and it connected to the kind of things we were doing um, In the film and it was just a perfect fit And they said they wanted to do it and that they would make it one of their next songs for their album fantastic um, and so we gave them the tagline of what we wanted to be said mm-hmm. um, and g- Give them gave them a sense of the kind of songs that we liked and we thought would would be a good fit Um, And they went off and just produced that um, what what was incredible is and I know the audience probably hasn't heard the song at this point but huh. it's really good it's really <laughs> I, great yeah it's really <laughs> and it's just i we were stunned we were blown away uh because uh we sent off this thing we didn't hear much from them for a while i just assumed we were going to get a few tinkles back on the piano and a bit of us um an amateur sort of song version e- emailed back to me as an mp3 at some point that i could give feedback on mm-hmm. but they sent back the whole thing completely finished <laughs> it had already gone through the studio it had already been made really high professional um, quality right. version of it and it it was lucky that it was just amazing and <laughs> what, but what I didn't I mean we'd always said it was just supposed to run over the credits right um, but I got the, that song and there was a, there's a certain way that that song ramps up for the first 30 seconds or so mm-hmm. that I realised oh wow that could actually start during the final fil- scene mm-hmm. of the film, and so I layered it over, and I was practically crying as it was just so perfect. <laughs> so the song starts in the film um, what, during the, like one of the most important parts of the character's journey, and then just carries on through the credits, and it feels great. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's that's fascinating. I love to hear the you know the backstory on that. That's really.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. I
0: mean if it was, it felt perfect at the end of the film, yeah. you know um, and, and so that was... it makes sense
2: that you did it that way <laughs> Yeah, it was, and it well it it doesn't because how could it possibly how could we have gotten that lucky, you know? Because <laughs> right I didn't plan it to be like that necessarily That's just the, the song fit like that They may have had a whole different intro and it would have just been a credit song um, Right, but the way that they chose to do it it worked really well um so anyway to carry on with that we we then because we'd all always said from day one we we wanted to take their themes and put it into the score, and we told them about the the bar, the uh, the band about that, and they were okay with that. And so um, I then went back to my composer, who I was working with. So that's uh, Grant Kirkhope, who um, actually, funnily enough, used to work at Rare <laughs> at oh. the same time I was working wow. there, and now he's living in LA. <laughs> um, so that was an amazing coincidence that we managed to figure all of that out. But um, I handed him the song he was blown away with it too and but then he started working elements of that back into his theme cool
1: um yeah the and, score is great as well yeah i know he's i know he well, he's work. just a ama- mate yeah. he's amazing yeah.
2: and he he's i i think one of the big things about him is not just the quality of the work he did but the attitude he has to it all mm. um i didn't pay him a dime um and he he was just squeezing that in between other big projects and he's got much bigger things to work on and huge credits and a huge following And the fact that he would spend his time working with us was just a huge honor (laughs) um but he had a wonderful attitude as he was working on stuff and he was completely open to taking somebody else's creative stuff and weaving it into Mm -hmm. his stuff um so again you've got that sort of sense of like a, a hint of the uh the theme being dropped in during the score which you then hear in its sort of ultimate version in the credits which makes you feel good as you get right. to it right yeah um, super effective
1: so yeah. so so we should probably yeah uh zoom out a bit uh mm-hmm. yeah exactly
0: <laughs> <laughs> sorry <I'll>, we,
1: <laughs> we get into the macro so easily yeah all right i'll let you take the lead though uh,
0: well i mean my my main question that i have is you know like what what drives you to make these these short films. Cause if they take so long to put together and so long to make and so, so many artists to do, it's like, you know, for, for a live action filmmaker, it might be like two to three years or in some cases, like five years is like a really long time to be working on like a live action short. But like all your, your projects have taken longer than that. So yeah, like what's the genesis behind, uh, like the wrong rock and what's, you know what's what's your process like in getting this thing started?
2: Um, probably insanity. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that <laughs> it's hard to explain. It's I think it's just in my blood to some degree that I have to do it. Um, I, like I said, there was a there was a period where I stopped doing all these short films as a student, and, and I got my first job, and I started doing my day job, and I was hoping that the day job would be enough, um, and I became pretty unhappy um, for the first decade because I wasn't hitting all those creative cues I wanted to do. And so when I started doing Devil's Angels and Dating, I think if nothing else, if nothing else came of it, what was most important to me was actually that I was becoming an animated filmmaker again. Mm. And I was doing the things that I wanted to be doing that I might not be able to get in my day job. Mm. And so as I went along and I was doing other projects, I would frequently... My side project would be based on uh, almost as a complement to whatever it was I was doing in my day job um, So when I started doing the wrong rock um, It was actually as a compliment to what I was doing at DreamWorks at the time um, I was doing like almost a dream project at DreamWorks quite honestly, right? Uh, the kind of characters and story and humor that we were doing there um, Was so incredible. It was just like well, but I I still felt a little bit like a cog in the machine and I needed a little pet project to do on the side. But what could I do that was going to complement that? And in some ways it freed me up because I was doing these cute, wonderful characters for my day job uh, for the first time in a long time. And so I felt like, well, that means I now don't feel the need to have to do um, cute, cartoony, biped characters for my pet project. Um, And so I suppose, logically, I should have done something live action at that point. Um, But uh, I had this little idea for a character on a rock, and and I had a really good story that came out of my own experiences and it was a message I really wanted to get out into the world Mm -hmm. and so I just sort of went well you know what I, I don't need it to be full on cartoony characters but let's see what they could be and I started that story basically the core of that story is it's about a character who grows up on a rock and there's another rock across the sea where those characters are more like what he wants to be And the the rock he grew up on kind of rejects him, uh, who he is, Mm. and he has to figure out how to get to the other rock, and that is a pretty that's like a metaphor for a lot of things that everybody have in their lives. I mean. We looked at this as a metaphor for it could be racism, it could be sexism, ageism, um, or in my case, it was just because I literally grew up in a country, uh, one particular country, and wanted access to the opportunities that were happening in another country. Um, (laughs) You're on the wrong, wrong rock. Exactly. (laughs) That's funny. But I I felt many of this, this is why when I watch a story about racism or something like that, it always triggers me a lot. Like, I get really angry sometimes when I'm watching a, a very effective story about racism or sexism or something like that. And I realize it because it's tapping into similar themes that I've gone through myself. Right. And that's where it all started and I and I was trying to figure out what's the easiest way for me to make a story about this and it started with well maybe I can just have a pebble on a rock that wants to get to this other set of pebbles on another rock But then I was like, well, it's very hard to make a pebble emote and show emotion. So I just slightly upgraded the pebble to a mushroom, uh, (laughs) which was just enough movement um, to keep things simple, but without going as far as turning it into a full character. Yes, audience. The Wrong Rock is a story about a bunch of mushrooms on rocks. That's
1: (laughs) right. Basically.
2: Yeah. Which, in some ways, is a hard sell, but at the time it made sense because it was supposed to be just the smallest project I could make for myself on the side, because um, you don't really want these projects to turn into huge epics. Right. You You, you want they them. typically do, somehow. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and, right. And just like you guys, I, I end up falling down the trap and right. turning it into an epic. Yes. But, but in some ways, it was a good thing because um, we made twice as much footage as I did for Devil's Angels and Dating. Mm in only two years mm. um, on the side oh, of well. other projects and things. Um, it really was you...
1: a two-year project
2: only. Mm. I, I don't
1: know why I think that's such a sh- short period of time.
2: But, yeah, um, but it's that's not long yeah. for a project of this scope. Right,
1: yeah. Uh, you know, independently and to be produced at this level. Mm. You know, visually, it's uh, it's very polished, mm. you know. So, uh, so
2: when did you start on The Wrong Rock? Uh, literally when I was finishing at DreamWorks, so... Um, end of 2016 I want to say Okay, so mm-hmm.
0: it's not like you were working on it when you finished Devil's Angels and Dating no. it was uh, you know uh, a, there was a break
2: yeah and funnily enough I've, I, uh, Devil's Angels and Dating took about five and a half years um, and I made promises to other people at that time that I wouldn't do anything like this again for at least a decade. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. I slightly broke that promise. Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, you know, I did other little things for myself, but there was that little niggling thing in the back of my mind feeling like I was kind of slightly incomplete, but if I'm not doing something like that. And so, although I'd severely upgraded my opportunities in my day job and I was doing all these big movies in Hollywood and everything, I still kind of wanted that something small i could just have for myself and do um on the side um and and that's where the wrong rock started for and it was i wrote the story and the funny thing was i still it was meant to be really just one or two minutes but um in order to really sell the the story in an impactful way i still expanded and expanded to the point where it's like oh this is going to be longer than you really want it to be and so <laughs> at, at some point i thought well i've one of the things I, I did on Devils was um, I attracted volunteers from all around the world and we all collaborated online. And it was one of the earliest, most successful versions of that. So I thought, well, I can at least leverage that experience and do the same thing again on the wrong rock. Um, and so again, I, I jumped onto a platform that's called Artella. Um, there's a few platforms out there now with similar themes where they bring together people online in order to create something animated. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was the one that was the most uh, most sort of publicly available at the time. And um, over time, we probably attracted about 100 people. I actually haven't counted properly, um, but my guess is the credits is probably about 100 in the full version. Wow. Um, and um, just did a similar sort of thing. It, it's mainly sort of you put it out there and you just see who's interested in doing certain things on it, and then I can just focus my time on the things that I can't recruit for. Right. Uh, um, so so same, same
1: principle. So Ortella
2: is, is sort of a,
1: a crowd-sourcing platform. I mean, like, you actually can find people mm-hmm. using that platform, and not only that, uh, the platform
2: itself is a way to organize that that work it is yes Um, I mean it's in beta Mm -hmm. so there's it wasn't a hundred percent polished at the time that I started on it uh, but it was improving as we went along Um, I think one of the biggest things though that you get out of it was just that it had become already at that stage A place where people knew to go to get involved in animated projects cool when when I did Devils There really was nothing Um, there was some forums where you could post um, But even they were dying out and the the consensus back then was that don't bother starting these projects They never work out you waste your time That's what people were telling me and yet funnily enough I succeeded in doing it so um, when I joined up on Artella, it had all—you know—there was enough people out there that had realised that it can be done, um, that it was quite popular. There, I don't know how many projects were on there. There was probably already a hundred projects on there at that at the time, right. um, which means that there's quite a body of artists. Um, and so I posted my project, said what I had done before, and then posted what positions I was interested in, and. For the most part, people just found me through Artella, um, so I didn't have to spend a lot of time running around all the forums saying I'm looking for this, I'm looking for that. That's fantastic. Which is what I had had to do first time around, right? So and and what kinds of, of artists
1: uh, were you looking for particularly? Was it shading or animators or riggers or
2: kind of kind of everything? But yeah. Like, I knew that there were certain things I wanted to do more of myself, Mm -hmm. but you can't really do that, unfortunately. If you actually want to get something finished, (laughs) you have to accept what people are willing to work on and then do the stuff that no one wants to do yourself. Right. (laughs) So, in the end, I didn't animate on The Wrong Rock. Right that's the insanity of it i'm gotcha. like i started as an animator and i'm making a film where i barely did any animation i mean <laughs> wow, sure I, that's funny i cleaned up other people's scenes mm-hmm. like if somebody was not quite up to standard mm-hmm. i would pick up some of those scenes and finish them off mm-hmm. and polish and all that stuff but i literally have no shots from the wrong rock that i would put in my animation reel right wow
0: <laughs> so so really quickly like with uh devils angels and dating you just put that movie out online and it got a Tons of hits, did really well, super successful, all that stuff. Mm. Uh, why did you decide to do a festival run with The Wrong Rock? Was it something that you wish you had done with Devils that you, well, you know, decided to do this time? Or
2: I actually, I, mean, I did a bit of a festival run with Devils, but um we all know that uh festivals prefer to have premieres um my view was that i wasn't going to get as much out of festivals as i would out of just putting it online immediately um so when i was doing devils um not only was i doing it online with a bunch of volunteers but i did it entirely in the public domain anyone could go and check out our work on the devils um During the process. So over a six year period, we had a public website where people could see the feeds, the forums, the the play blasts, the animation, everything. Um, And I made a promise to my team members that they could use anything that they did on the project immediately in their portfolio. So that made it a lot easier to recruit. Um, And it also meant that we just finished the film and put it online. Um, and then we did do a festival run but obviously we were only accepted into festivals that were kind of lower tier um that didn't mind that we were already online um we we still won one won a few awards and things just nothing huge mm-hmm. you know we we won some best film best animation but in smaller festivals that most people hadn't heard of sort of things um enough to put a few laurels on the website mm-hmm. when it came to the wrong rock though I knew that we were making a film that was more of a festival pleaser um, it was whereas Devils was kind of designed to attract people to click on the thumbnail on YouTube right Dev De- the wrong rock was designed to do well at festivals um, so we we figured we might we have to kind of give it its due give it its chance to see what it can do at festivals before we put it out online um so we're still figuring out cool. if that's if it's going to be successful or not in that front. Yeah,
0: nice. And then how how did like I mean do you know why or how um, you know Devil's got so many hits online or was that just like you put it out and it did well or did you do a a bunch of like campaigning for it and trying to get articles written about it and that stuff or like
2: how, do you know how that happened? Well, it's it's not a traditional thing. I have um colin and i both have a mutual friend lucas who put out his film and he got like millions of views very quickly and it attracted attention um whereas this one didn't quite spike that fast um what happened was i put the film out and it kind of had a slower more organic growth i think by the end of the first year it had done a million views and then i was contacted by uh frederator which is like a network on youtube And and they said, we'd love to have you as part of our network, and we'll put advertising on it so you can make some money. Um, I I didn't really care about the money part. I didn't expect to make much money out of it. Um, What I said to them is that, but can you get it seen by more people? Um, And they said, yeah, we can do that. Uh, (laughs) And so they took the... uh, my whole channel, basically, and um, we put adverts on most things, but really, devils was wow. the main thing. Funnily enough, at first, it didn't seem to do much, and then I prodded them and said, "Hey, have you done that marketing yet?" And they went, "Oh yeah, we'll do it now." And when they when they <laughs> did that, it spiked big time. Oh wow! Um, and. That's crazy, and it and it, and it and it was the original link. Yep. They didn't repost it. Oh wow! No, no, it's crazy. So I just my my channel became part of their network, and they put advertising on it. So they basically take a third of the advertising, um, and we still have that arrangement to this day. Oh wow! Um, Amazing. And so it's not like it's it did sixteen million views overnight what it did was it increased the amount of views I was getting and it just kept increasing and increasing and increasing until it got to a point where even when it didn't seem to be doing anything crazy it was still doing uh, 15,000 views a day um, Wow! Oh, wow! and when you're doing that many views every single day it climbs and just keeps climbing um, yeah. and crazy. so it's slowed down now for sure I think it's doing more like Three or 4,000 views a day. Um, but it's basically become you know, uh, a, a regular video that just keeps showing up in people's feeds on YouTube wow. to the point that people are coming back to it and go, oh, I remember this old film. You know, oh, I watched wow. this when I was a kid. <laughs> That's funny.
1: Wow, amazing. Right. Yeah. But it's sort of a testament partially to the uh, importance of marketing, as you kind of indicated, because mm. they were pushing it to some degree uh yes and then also you know like some sort of threshold that happens (laughs) you know in youtube's uh, mysterious algorithm you know where suddenly okay like it's gotten this amount of you know uh like it fulfills like people watch it they watch it all the way through people like it you know uh Mm. when it's suggested people click on it like somehow it reached this this critical
2: mass where Mm. um it was just showing up in people's feeds. Well, one thing I will say, and I, I don't know how influential this is, but I feel like this is part of it, um, is that I put it on my own channel, whereas a lot of people these days are giving their films to somebody else's channel who's already got subscribers. <laughs> right, yep. And yep. <laughs> the, snag with, the snag with that is that it's thrown out there, and if they don't put much behind it, you have no control of it after the fact. Whereas when I put it on my own channel, I was able to change the thumbnails, I could keep changing the um, keywords, um, and so I could react to things as they were happening. Mm. Um, so over the years, I've been adjusting the th- the keywords, mm-hmm. um, responding to what's going on in the world at any given time, changing the, th- the, the keywords, and, uh, and adjusting the, that thumbnail. Wow. T- um, it, for a long time, I had the same thumbnail for a very long time because it was very popular. When I removed yeah. that thumbnail, the views would drop like thousands, oh, really? thousands of views wow. left less per day. Wow! And so it was like, oh shit, I better put that thumbnail back again. <laughs> um, th- there was a time when I would put the laurels over it, and YouTube doesn't care about that stuff. Right. Um, so oh, really, yeah, it's about a, an image that's uh, going to look good in that like inch-sized box off onto the right-hand right. side right. so that, my focus we're gonna want to click on exactly you now so I just make sure to have like a, a vibrant interesting image um, for the main thumbnail mm-hmm. and then I keep adjusting maybe every few months i, I go in and, and update the uh, keywords and what i frequently wow. do and this is a little secret i hope nobody's going to copy this but <laughs> i i go to uh rotten tomatoes and i see what's currently coming out and popular and i and i pinch the titles or keywords for things that are currently coming out that i think are related so like animated films and things like that and i drop them in about a quarter of the keywords um, so that there's always wow. something so if someone's looking for the latest trailer for a particular new movie that there's a chance my film might wow. show up in the suggestions bar on the right hand side. <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> Wait a second. Man. So this is uh
1: it's not in the description, it's not like hashtags. It's mm. uh it's keywords. Keywords okay. Which I'm not I guess not familiar enough with how YouTube works, but you No, can well that's the
2: thing, because your films uh, your films are on other people's channels, right? Most of the time. Well
1: Uh, yeah, I guess so. I know some of them are on your channel. The the, the
2: only ones that have gotten anywhere are not on my channel. (laughs) Exactly. My point is that you don't have control over those keywords to go go back in there and make a change 10 years later.
0: (laughs) Brilliant. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I think we should wrap things up. But I have Mm -hmm. one last question. Do you have a last question, Colin? I
1: can come up with one.
0: Uh, you can okay, I'll, I'll ask first. Yeah. Okay, so so what is your ultimate goal? I know mean, I know that you just uh, you know your your son was son yes. daughter.
2: Yes, uh, my son Ethan. Your Cagle. son wow. was just was
0: just born. <laughs> Congratulations!
2: Yeah,
0: thank you. <laughs> um, so are you thinking about like your next project now like what what is the ultimate goal with all this like are you hoping to get the chance to direct your own feature animation film later down the line or are you just hoping to do another short film
2: like what is what's the plan that would be the dream um my, my impression is that you don't just jump into things that quickly and easily um so you know i'm I'm doing the kind of work right now that I think is very comfortable and very suitable and I will enjoy for a, quite a while while I'm getting adjusted to being a father. Mm. Um, somewhere along, along the line, I will, I'm will. i always pursuing other little things on the side. And when I get a little bit more headspace to figure things out, I will um, continue developing my side projects. Um, I think maybe the next thing, smart thing might be just to collaborate with somebody else who's got more free time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but... Um, We'll see. And then just build from there and hopefully further down the line, you know, before my career is done, I will have directed an animated feature. That would be nice. (laughs) Totally. Awesome.
1: Mm. Sweet. Um, My last question, Mm. uh, just curious, looking back at the uh, two-year process of making the the wrong rock, Mm. um, what is the biggest lesson you um, took away that you'll apply next time around?
2: Mm. I don't know. I mean... You, you, there's so many big things that hit you. Um, yeah, I think for maybe the most immediate thing for a next project, I'm probably just going to try focusing on the writing and the storyboarding, mm-hmm. and less on the CG, mm-hmm. um, because. Um, I already spend my day sitting in front of Maya. Right. I mean, I've spent 20 years looking at the same piece of software, <laughs> right. um, and I kind of don't want to do that um, in my pet projects now. Yep. Uh, and it's funny how I still got sucked into doing that for the wrong rock. Right, um, and and. Yeah, I had no idea I was going to. It was going to look as pretty or as have as many effects as it, as that one did. And so, I feel like my big lesson is trying to figure out how to focus on that pure creativity of the writing and the, mm-hmm. and the drawing mm-hmm. um, for my next thing. Um, so it might cool. just be that I make a little storyboard next, right mm. um, cool, nice, mm. uh, awesome, yeah, it seems like part of you know
1: part of it is it, it kind of goes back to the thing that you said, which is I mean because this is essentially a passion project mm. and uh, people are volunteering and you kind of have to do the things that other people don't want to do yeah uh, you sometimes don 't have control over what it is what it is that you will <laughs> actually find yourself end up doing. doing yeah exactly yeah and no, until I, you have like resources until you have you know lots of money to throw at people you know hmm.
2: to i well, mean you do you feel like that is the, the the key you know that that's definitely a lesson i took from the first to the second so yeah. devils i i was paranoid that if i paid anybody i would lose team members because i couldn't afford to pay everybody uh, um or You know, if one person found out someone else was getting paid, they'd be offended and they'd leave. Mm. So I just didn't do it at all. Um, Interesting. And I only paid for a few things out of pocket that I had to, some piece of software or or some service I needed. So that one cost very little on paper. Mm -hmm. Um, But The Wrong Rock, um, by that time, I'd come to the conclusion it was actually smart to spend the money on the things that you can't get done. Right so those things that were very very challenging to get done and that were like getting character models took uh, at least push the project back a year at least wow. on Devils. and that's a long time yeah. to, wow. to get something that important done so on um the wrong rock Uh, I just sort of said, okay, I talked to my wife and we put aside a budget and we said this is how much we're going to spend and we're going to break it up amongst the categories of things that are hard to get done. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, we spent money on team members. Mm -hmm. And the way that we found that was the most effective for that was um, we call the work kind of volunteer plus mm-hmm. um, in that it's basically volunteer work but that we will occasionally pick a milestone say that we want to get certain things done by this milestone we're gonna spend this much money we're going to offer chunks of that money to team members and say if you can get this particular assignment done by this date we will send you this money um, oh, wow. and More often than not, it helped a bit. Mm. Um, And... They would get that thing done by that date or close enough, and we would send the money over. Right. Um, occasionally, though, you would find it made no difference at all because they <laughs> oh, were doing—they were just doing it on the side. They were more into the work than they were, the, and they had some other day job that paid way more than we could ever afford to pay. Right. Right. So it would make no dent at all. Right. And, and so that could be frustrating because you're trying to find ways to control the process. Yeah. To motivate people and uh, and yeah. you have really and you realize <laughs> shit, I don't really have any control at all. I'm just lucky if I get anything. Thing, at which point you just have to be very grateful. Right. Wow. Okay. So,
0: Michael, mm. where can we find your work? Sh- sh- give us all the stuff your website, yeah. um, links you want us to, to, to people to look at, Twitter, Facebook, all
2: that stuff. Right. Um, well, my uh, portfolio can be found at michaelkwood.com. So that's M I C H A E L C A W O O D.com. Um, you can find out about The Wrong Rock at thewrongrock.com. You can find out about Devil's Angels and Dating at devilsangelsanddating.com. <laughs> Sensing a all, theme. all the logical stuff. I'm pretty good at getting the domain names for stuff, <laughs> nice. projects I work on now. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Um, so those are the main links, I would say. Have a look at those. Um, and and I, I've sort of, with my wife, we've partnered up and formed a company that we call um, Heromation. Um, to be honest, oh, cool. m- mostly that is just to do our pet projects. We've published a few books through that brand and we've um, put the wrong ruck out there with that brand. Mm. Other than that, it's mostly kind of scraps of stuff because I still have a day job. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. And then are you on social media? Do you do Twitter, Instagram, any of that stuff? Yeah, just look me up, Michael Kaywood. It's usually my name in most of the places. So I'm on (laughs) Twitter and um, I have an Instagram account and a few other things like that. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Great.
1: All right, Colin. Take us out, okay. man. So <clears throat> uh, thank you for listening. And thank you, Mike Kaywood, for being on the show. It's great to talk with you. Congrats on finishing you. your film. And congrats on fatherhood. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, send us an email at podcast at com. Or find us on Twitter and Facebook at mmih podcast. Uh, I'm Colin Levy uh, on Twitter at Colin Levy, and um, let's see, Allrick, <laughs>
0: yeah, and I'm Allrick B on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as well. <laughs> And, yeah, please, if you like the show, tell a friend, guys, and uh, help us get the word out. Leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. I mean, I don't think we've gotten a review since uh, we've gone to co-hosts only. Um, I don't know if that's different now, but... Uh but yeah, we could we could use the support. At least I could use the support to know if people even care about the show anymore. So uh <laughs> I no one is listening. <laughs> <laughs> Mike cares. That's yeah. good. It's, we got, it's as, great, long as... as long oh, as everyone who's
1: talking cares. That's really <laughs> yeah. all that matters. <laughs> exactly. Great. Well, thank you both for for an excellent uh, conversation. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Yeah, thanks guys. Talk to you next week.
1: See ya. Bye.